Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today on what we hope is a great show. We talked to Mary Rose Somarriba about Verily Magazine, a wonderful publication for women, for real women, home of content that elevates the everyday Ashley McGuire joins me for that discussion. But first, I'm really pleased about our next guest. His name is Paul Shrimpton, and I met him in England when I was there a few months ago. He's a historian and an educator who has lived in Oxford since 1977. He studied at Balliol College and has been teaching at the Magdalen College School right there in the center of Oxford. He is uh, a scholar, St. John Henry Newman, and you know if you listen to this radio show, to this podcast, you will know that uh, he's a great favorite of ours at the Catholic Association for lots of reasons. Paul Shrimpton wrote a book about um, the White Rose Society that I will explain in a moment in case you haven't heard of it. The book is called Conscience Before Conformity, Hans and Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. So the White Rose was a nonviolent intellectual resistance group in Nazi Germany. Um, that was led by five university students, five very young people, and one professor at the University of Munich. A couple of the students, particularly who have gripped uh, the imagination of the whole world, are uh, Sophie and Hans Scholl. They operated under the name of the White Rose. They printed and distributed leaflets condemning Nazism and some of the more heinous acts of the Nazis, urging Germans to offer a nonviolent resistance to the atheistic war machine, which is what they called it. They, uh, what they did was they, they printed several leaflets and they, they copied them by hand on those old mimeograph machines and they used just the phone book and they addressed um, many thousands of envelopes and sent out the leaflets. They only operated for less than a year before they were captured by the Gestapo and tried, and and many of them executed. One or two survived, some were jailed, but Hans and Sophie Scholl were uh, executed four days after their capture. They are modern-day heroes that, to this day, are revered in Germany. Very young people who were able to resist the the totalitarian blanket conformity, basically, of, of the German people. And there's a lot that we can learn from them, especially these days where we are seeing the, this horrible uh, tide of anti-Semitism swamp the West in response to the Hamas pogrom. So there's a lot going on that we can connect to the rise of Nazi Germany and the way that the virulent hatred at the heart of totalitarian societies is directed very often to the Jews. But of course, it doesn't stop there. 11 million people or so died in the concentration camps. Many more died because of the aggression of Germany that started World War II, of course. And in, in that way, this virulent hatred, even though it's directed maybe at one group of people, especially it, it embraces in, in a very liberal way, we might say, any human being that gets in its in its path and and obstructs obstructs the way of hatred. So we have so much to learn, and I and I think Professor Paul Shrimpton um, is a perfect person to talk about this subject. Welcome to the show, Professor Shrimpton. Thank you very much. 
It's wonderful to, to have to you. you all the way from across the, the whole wide Atlantic Ocean. Uh, you're, we're talking to you. You're in Oxford where you live and teach. And we had, as I explained earlier, I had the pleasure of meeting you in person in Oxford. You gave us a beautiful lecture on St. John Henry Newman and um, me and the rest of our pilgrimage group. And we, we really enjoyed it. And I really wanted to have you on because you're exactly the right kind of person, I think, for the, the current climate of what's going on in the world because you wrote this wonderful book called Conscience Before Conformity, Hans Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. Now, you're going to talk a lot, but if I, could, if I could tell you why I wanted to have you on, Professor, mm-hmm. is because for two reasons. In my mind, there are two very striking similarities between our time now and the time that Hans and Sophie Scholl were facing. Uh, well, there's many similarities, but these two to me are very striking. Number one, there's a totalitarian impulse in the world um, from, the, from the hard left, from uh, the way that they want to silence uh, all the voices that don't, and they do effectively silence all the voices that don't agree with certain facets of their ideology, right? Um, and that's a totalitarian impulse, and many of us are feeling uh, beleaguered and feeling, feeling that heavy pressure of the totalitarian impulse. And number two uh, ever since the, the terrible atrocities in, in Israel with the Hamas pogrom, basically, uh, there has been uh, to, very many displays of anti-Semitism, of raging anti-Semitism all across uh, the West. And that's another similarity with um, the, the world that Hans and, and Sophie Scholl were living in and the White Rose Society developed in. So those two elements for me were very interesting and I made sure to read your whole wonderful book and to have you on so we could talk about conscience before conformity. So thank you for joining us. And tell us, when you, when you wrote this book, I think that you were very much, well, obviously from the title and now that I've read the book, you were very much, you were concentrating on conscience. And conscience is, is, is a tremendous point of, um, of interest to, to, to everyone, to everyone who faces this hard world, but especially to scholars of Newman, of John Henry Newman, um, like you are. Tell us about conscience and how that's at the, at the center of your book. Well, th- there have been a number of um, books written in English, half a dozen to eight, maybe, uh, telling the White Rose story. When I found about the connection between them and John Henry Newman in 2010, which was the year of the beatification when Pope Benedict came to England to to beatify in person Newman, it became apparent that the the White Rose students had been deeply influenced by him. Now, I read all all the books I could get in English, um, and I realised that the story wasn't fully explained, and they'd missed a trick. In particular, the fact that the um, these students, Hans and Sophie in particular, were <laughs> they're the most well-known student resistors to Hitler in, in Nazi times. And yet, when they were younger, they'd both been very enthusiastic members of the Hitler Youth. Mm-hmm. They joined when it was only optional at the age of, it would have been 12 and 14, respectively, and defied their father, like their three brothers and sisters, joined and became group leaders. Um, So Hans was someone who carried the flag for his town at the Nuremberg rally. Uh, But they became disillusioned with what was going on and gradually turned into more deeply opposing the Nazi regime and National Socialism. So I wanted to sort of trace out the story um, of these 
young people to see what it was that changed them so amazingly over those seven or eight years to the fact that they eventually released these leaflets and distributed them at a great uh, risk and eventually were were guillotined. Um, That was the 22nd of February, um, 1943. Um, So what was it? Was it just sheer madness? Was it love of freedom? No, it turned out to be they... uh, they, they they were searching for meaning, effectively, um, and they hit on Christian sources, in particular, ancient and modern. And it was particular works of St. Augustine's Confessions, um, Pascal's Ponce, and George Bernanos' Diary of Country Priest. But at some stage, in about a year before they were executed, they came across the works of John Henry Newman. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about Newman, you know that his big ideas are there throughout all his work so it's very difficult to pin and i've been working at newman what for 35 years or so now it's very difficult to pin down anywhere in particular um a given theme so we have about twenty-five thousand letters of newman surviving in 32 fat volumes the theme of conscience runs all the way there there are about 10 volumes of his sermons it's in every second or third of them uh it's in books so it is all over the place. And uh, anyone working on human and conscience, it's a really difficult thing. I mean, here's, here's, um, it, to some extent, it's intuitive. He never gives a really snappy definition. But effectively, he says conscience is two things. One is it's a moral compass indicating what is right or wrong in a past action, what we're doing or what we may do. And then it is um, we, we feel the voice of someone directing us. It is a duty to, to carry out and to act upon or not to act, depending on what the particular thing is. So he he it's there all the time. So I'm not quite sure whether it develops. It's just um, from an early age, it was there. And to such an extent that he sort of has devised this um, modern proof of the existence of God by going within oneself, looking in one's interior world to realise that there is a voice speaking there. It comes from someone it is the voice of God echoing in. It's the aborig- Aboriginal Vicar of Christ is one of his phrases. I love that. I love that phrase. Several of which have entered into the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, Professor. It's very difficult to pin it down exactly. And probably the two people in the history of Christianity who have spoken most about conscience, and this is I, not my idea, it's, it's the idea of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict, are Augustine and Newman. Those two spoke more than any other single people. And Augustine, Augustine is one of the right, the early Christian writers that that uh, that Sophie and Hans read mm. and digested, and and it changed them. And you do a wonderful job in the book of of tracing their their intellectual, their philosophical, their religious, uh, um, the path that they take from, as you say, being uh, banner carriers at the Nuremberg rally to giving it all up to follow their conscience. Uh, that's mm. a, it's a beautiful path that you trace. And uh, it's, it makes me very hopeful and, um, for, for, our current, for our current state uh, because these were, these were young people without any power in, in a society that was uh, tremendously terrifying, if you ask me. It was a, it was a terrifying time in, in Germany for anyone who, who thought they could disagree even slightly with with the with, with the government and and yet it was these young people very young people that that were able 
to, to resist. I'm sure there were many, many resistors uh, of people of conscience in Germany, but we know them very, we know them very well. We know their, we, we remember them and we remember them for their youth. So in, in very quickly, uh, as young people, they were able to, to make that, that intellectual and spiritual movement from, from conformity to, to followers of conscience. You do a wonderful job tracing that. Thank you. It wasn't easy. Um, families were split as well. Uh, the Scholl family, um, which had five children, including Hans and Sophie, they were vehemently anti-Nazi after they'd all been to the first three or four years and all the children had joined the Hitler Youth. But other members of the White Rose, like Willy Graf, the Catholic, the main Catholic member, because the Scholls were Lutheran, and there was another, Alex Schmorell, was um, Orthodox. Um, so it was an ecumenical group of <laughs> students, you could say. But their families were split. Yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah, it, it, there were arguments at home. Mum thought one thing, dad another. And this went, this was all around Germany. Families couldn't make sense of what was going on. But it was the, um, it was all the informers which were installed by the um, the Nazis, which really closed down public debate. So every block of flats had its own informant. So there was this sense everywhere you were being watched. And that's so, a that's a hallmark of a totalitarian society, mm. and what it what it causes is a, a corruption in almost every member, right? So you mm. live in a society like that, and it's not that some people are corrupt and 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 the rest of the people are going along. There's an element of corruption that that invades almost everyone, except people who are tremendously <laughs> able yeah. to rise above that, like the Scholls. So mm. what was what was special about Hans and Sophie and their white rose companions oh, yeah. that that yeah. were, they were able I, to ex extirpate that that corruption out of their own souls? Sure. Okay. Let me just go back to what you said a moment ago about the lots of people resisting. In terms of the sort of environment they came on, fairly bourgeois, middle to upper middle class, highly talented, musical, sporty, uh, very gregarious. They were marked exceptions. Uh, there were hardly anyone did deeds of resistance like they did. The, the main people who did were those on the hard left, it's got to be said. Uh, but on the in the middle of the road and people who saw what was going on, no, I mean, very, very few. Yeah, this is one of the things I try to trace out. But it was the fact that um, they turned to prayer and it was just extraordinary reading their diaries, especially Sophie's. She reads like... Um, a modern mystic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost mm -hmm. like reading something out of, uh, well, the Spanish mystics, uh, Therese of Avila, John of the Cross, uh, absolutely sensational passages where she's just in anguish trying to work out why they are suffering so badly, where, there's, where there seems to be so little hope. But also it's the way she, they all behave. They're very tightly knit, these, these students, they have they circulate their letters, um, books. They love forbidden books. They read endlessly. They have book clubs. They go skiing in the holidays and talk about um, how to resist and ways. Um, so they're, they're reinforcing each other, but they find so few of their friends are willing to go with them. And even when they have um, start up their letter camp, their leaflet campaign very very few people are willing to to come on board and that's partly because and um, they know that if they're caught their brothers and sisters and parents and other relatives will be taken in as well and roughed up or locked up so it was terrifying they knew really from the very beginning 
that it was a life yes they were they were putting their lives on the line uh so extraordinary i tried to yeah, put myself in there. i put yeah the bravery i tried to put myself in their shoes and there's a time because uh, they were only really active uh, doing the leaflets for less than a year. It, was, it wasn't a very long time that they, mm-hmm. that they were able to act, to really act. I mean, I think they prepared for action for, for, for a good while. Uh, but uh, I, they were seeing death all around them. I mean, this was, this was a time when yeah. 100 million people were in the process of being killed in one way or another uh, ac- across Europe and in the Pacific. Uh, and, and they got to that point where they said, you see it. You see it beautifully echoed over and over again. The way Sophie's, the way so, in Sophie's letters and in her journal, and and Hans' letters, that if life has to be, and if life has to come to an end, and it's coming to an end all around them, then they, it's okay for life to come to an end with holding on to that to, because they were led there by their conscience, right? Mm-hmm. Like a uh, an acceptance of 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 their fate, in a way that was very beautiful and. Um, I think a lesson to many of us that that guard ourselves, our our lives, our possessions, our 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 positions so carefully from from any kind of loss. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were just extraordinary in that respect. Yeah. Uh, let me go back to the the fact that uh, Hans and Sophie and their compatriot, com- I mean, their companions were were very young. Do you think youth? You're a professor. You, you deal with youth all the time, young people. Do you think that youth is a special time where the voice of conscience is maybe more easily heard or we're more open to the voice of conscience? Uh, yes, I think it's uh, open, but at the same time, it isn't just um, knowing what's right and wrong. It's um, having the ideals and the bravery to act on that. Mm-hmm. So it's that aspect of conscience, which is quite extraordinary in them. Um they saw what was right and they did it in extremely hard circumstances, knowing that they were setting up their siblings and their parents for trouble. And that's not an easy thing to do. Um, yes, right at the end, when I mean, one of my readers, a law professor at Oxford, was he he was yeah, he he read the book and we took we chatted for an over an hour about what was it that um that ultimately uh, sets them apart from everyone else. And it's uh, a fundamental human decision deep, deep inside, which means, no, I must do the right thing. I must not compromise. Um, so it was just, it, but they built this up over time. So Hans and Sophie, it, so they did these, if you like, these great deeds of martyrdom, you, you could put it that way, but it came from hundreds, if not thousands of tiny deeds beforehand of not giving in, of remaining true to oneself, true to the truth, more to the point, um, and doing the difficult thing endlessly. So, I mean, Sophie, when she was on her, she was did four six-month war service um, sort of assignments before she could um, go to university in, in Munich. Um, but in each of those, she was with virulently Nazi youth so the majority of, of youngsters were swept away with all this mm-hmm. uh, in fact it was only after writing it all what the atmosphere was like in the university i began to realize my goodness there are extraordinary echoes with what you see around yes. nowadays there was something about them they didn't go with the flow well they did initially but then they realized where it was going they pulled back really hard and turned around um they would have found it extremely difficult to do on their own 
but they were a small group. They turned to prayer, and it was their readings, seeing the great thinkers in the past, and they were the ones really able to make sense of the moral mess that they were in. And that, that helped enormously. Newman, Augustine, Bananos, Dostoevsky was another one they read. Um, yeah, but they, they had to have that support. And, and uh, yeah, and the, the encouragement. But it's, uh, yes, you, you, you hear in Sophie's diary, she talks about re her reading her daily dose of Augustine. Um, she sets aside time to pray each day, even though she's depressed or finds it difficult. She mentions on one occasion she's had a second shower, cold shower in the day. Um, she makes life tough for herself. That's partly because her brothers and the, the men, young men she knew who were studying medicine at university were on the war front, and she felt a sense of solidarity with them. If they are suffering, I've got to suffer too, where I am looking after these groups of school children in hospitals, all the work I do. An extraordinary idea um, of, of sort of identifying with those people at the front. Um, and I think it was also the, 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 they sent out four leaflets in a space of 20 days. They had to disband as all the men were sent off to the um, Eastern Front. Uh, many of them ended up um, near Stalingrad. But when they came back, they'd seen such butchery mm. there. So many people slaughtered, not just Jews, but Slavs as well, that they just felt, well, it, people are dying for utterly pointless reasons. And here we are. Um, we're going to risk our lives for something which of, of real worth. Professor, and that idea was very, very deep within them. We only have a couple minutes left, but I wonder if you could address, uh, for people who are feeling the similarity, young people especially, who are feeling the similarities with, with, with in, the, in our totalitarian environment, it's very much people in universities. I, I have five children and they've been in all, they've been in and out of university, some of them, some of them not yet, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I've seen that that totalitarianism in action. I've seen how how impossible it is to say certain things that you believe, and and how you're you're forced to speak untruths in order to to get along and to not be mm -hmm. marked marked uh, for ex extermination, as it were. But um, what what would you recommend to young people facing uh, a totalitarian atmosphere like Hans and Sophie Scholl did? You mentioned, I think you mentioned some of the elements that, that brought the White Rose yes. Society together. I mean, prayer was one of them, reading of different types, people re reading the thoughts of those who've answered the big questions in the world. Why is there evil? Why do people do bad things? Um, yeah, I mean, Dostoevsky has all that in, but so do many others. Um, but what really um, I thought was key was the fact that they um, they met with each other and helped each other endlessly. They had book reading groups. They had, um, the Shoals had a sort of family magazine, but there were extended members who shared in it. Maybe it had a circulation list of about 10 to 12 to 15, but many of their like-minded friends came round to the Shoal household and the father would let off steam about Hitler. <laughs> and occasionally in meals, he would get up and ask permission well, he begged the ch uh, children's permission uh, to leave the table early because he said, I just have to go and earn a jail sentence, by which he meant oh. <laughs> um, going into another room and listening to um, the BBC broadcast of the day. Um, 
So I think it was that solidarity between them which helped them no end um, and supported each other because it was really difficult. Yeah. I mean, the when the, the, the books I had to read, on, which helped me to imagine what it was like for Sophie Scholl arriving at uh, Munich University in 1942, well, having to st study all sorts of courses on Nazi racial theory, this, that and the other, and how to dodge all that and how the, the student, the National St Socialist Student Union, completely monopolised what was going on and reported anyone, any lecturer who was speaking, make, ridiculing the regime or saying anything which was slightly dubious. So the atmosphere was incredibly tense. But nevertheless, there were these academics who were prepared to take the risk and there were students as well. Um, and I, I just thought that was just uh, sensational reading about that and thinking, gosh, we're, we're entering those times once again. I wrote that. It came out in, in 2018. And in five years, we've moved on so much. Mm -hmm. And it, it's there even more so now, all those passages. So my goodness, yes, I'm seeing um, a repeat in history of what's going on. So yes, they are. They're wonderful models for every young German growing up, and it has been for the case for the last 40 years, the, the Scholls and their other friends in the White Rose resistance movement are the um, adolescents and early 20s people to model themselves on. Well, I think so, that uh, for other students all across all across the West, young, other young people, they should all, they can also use the Scholls. They don't have to be German um, as, as we all, as we, as our young people face um, Maybe not as as a terrifying a, a place, but certainly a very a very oppressive um, totalitarian uh, society and academics, especially. But in basically all the all, all the institutions have been captured. It seems so. Professor Professor Shrimpton, thank you so much for joining us. Your book is Conscience Before Conformity: Hans and Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. Thanks for writing it, and I hope that our listeners will buy some and give to their young people in their lives to give them inspiration and a wonderful model. Thank you very much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Joining us next is Mary Rose Somarriba. She's the editor-in-chief of Verily Magazine, which is a wonderful women's magazine, what every women's magazine should be, one that elevates and inspires. It's back in a print edition after being just online for some time, although the publication has been around for 10 years. It's, it's one of my personal favorites and also of Ashley's, my co-host co-hostess, I should say, since we're talking women's magazines. So welcome to the to the show, Mary Rose. Thank you so much. It's so great to chat with you all. Mary Rose, we are living in what I think most people would agree are not healthy or maybe a, the right word is toxic times uh, for women and girls when it comes to media. We live in a, sort of a TikTok 
hellscape. And you are the editor-in-chief of Verily, which um, tries to provide something entirely different, something that's uplifting, positive, wholesome, and authentic. Tell us what it's like managing a women's magazine in a world that's so toxic for women when it comes to um, media. Thanks. Yeah. No, it's really actually lovely. I love working for Verily. I've been working over the 10 years. Um, I didn't found Verily. It was founded by Kara Bach and Janet Easter, but um, I was culture editor at the time of the founding and was for many years. And and it's just been so lovely to pull out the good little bits of stories that, you know, the good, the beautiful out in, in the culture. And it's been really lovely to develop the magazine as a whole now. It's, I love print media. I used to work at First Things in print and the New Atlantis before that. And I just do love to hold a magazine in my hands. And um, so it's really fun to put it together. It's got a bunch of beautiful photography and art and as well as women's stories, articles, pieces of journalism, relationship advice. So I find it super uplifting because to do this, I just have to be talking with uh, different contributors and artists and photographers and ladies uh, we have real woman photographed and um and it's just as well as models you know for fashion shoots occasionally and it's really fun it's just a really lovely experience i think that the world out there i love your phrase tiktok hellscape it's crazy out there i i do think it's like olivia rodriguez says it's brutal out there i remember the first time i heard that and i thought wow this girl's on to something um, because it out there on TikTok and whatnot, it's and Instagram and throughout media, um, but especially women's media, and we see so many images of girls that are sexualized and just uh, objectifying imagery and just leading girls to a sense of like you have to look a certain way to be worthy, to be relevant, to be noticeable, and you know everybody does want to be noticed and appreciated, and and everybody wants love and relationships. I mean, we're made for relationships. And so that's where the damage can really be really problematic to, uh, with the distortion of, of things that we see on TikTok and, and elsewhere on social media. And the um, health effects are, are, are impossible to ignore now. It just keeps getting worse. I mean, it was there at the time when Verily was founded. There was a Dove study that showed after three minutes of flipping through a woman's magazine, women feel worse about themselves. <laughs> and now it just keeps getting worse and worse. Now it's just social media and online imagery that's all altered and filtered and not real um, or relatable is just making people feel worse about their real bodies, their real selves, and can make it hard for people to feel themselves and get back in touch with who they are. And we are trying to help women to feel um, to get back to who they really are. And all these images can really take a toll, can really hurt one's own self-image, one's sense of self-worth, and also one's expectations in the world and relationships that, that aren't helping women, as we can see. Mary Rose, you and I have both recently had babies, and Gracie has also given birth four times. And one of the things that I just still find flabbergasting is with all this talk about women's empowerment in these magazines that you see in the checkout aisle, there is this constant like, oh, this celebrity uh, bounced right back. And it's some, mm. you know, celebrity who probably has a personal trainer and a chef and eats like 200 calories a day, looking like they haven't given birth two weeks after giving birth. Mm -hmm. And, and also like she such... has a day nanny and a night nanny, right? Oh, right. <laughs> so that she can get plenty of rest and get her bags under her eyes taken care of. <laughs> And I just, I just can't believe that there's still this absurd pressure. You know, I'm just talking about where I am 
personally in my life on moms to, you know, look like they haven't had a baby right after they had a baby. And mm-hmm. so, you you know, you just talked a lot about images and, and distorting images. And it, am I right that Verily doesn't Photoshop? And if so, how do you actually do you know, images that are interesting and appealing and aesthetic without those distortions? What are the kinds of things that you're trying to pull out or prioritize that make it still, you know, a visually appealing thing? um, Because people do love beauty. How do you present Mm -hmm. beauty without distortion? Yeah, no, I mean, I really do think, you know, we do have to just showing women as we are as our beautiful selves. Um, and there are ways to do that, you know, with different our different sizes of different stages of our lives. And the key is, um, you know, some will say like a confident woman is lovely, you know, is beautiful. Um, and someone who doesn't feel as confident or feels insecure, that's where it can be harder um, for them to feel beautiful. And, and so we do really think we got to build women up. We don't want to have these expectations that are unrealistic or unhealthy, such as to get back down to your pre-baby size like two weeks after birth or even a year after birth, frankly, or basically ever for me. Um, So it's, you know, your body changes, you know, and in some ways, some ways my body goes up and down since babies have come and, you know, entered in my life. But then, and then I remember after the second one, I was living in Texas and I was definitely enjoying the food there and driving a lot more than walking than I had before in the cities that I lived in. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never been quite this size in my life. But of course, I was way far away from my family and like nobody saw me. And um, but my mom visited after the baby and she was like, oh, okay." (laughs) But I really appreciated that she was uh, just, you know, not not judgmental at all. I mean, she's my mom. She had four kids. And here I was like, "Okay, here's my Texan little boy. And um, and but, you know, then after my breast milk was gone, um, it just it just all fell off. So in some ways, I felt that was a relief because it was hormonal and I couldn't blame myself. Although even if I, you know, I just think that we just, it just taught me that it is, it is really mother nature, you know, or our bodies, you know, as women, we really have a magical and beautiful supernatural ability to bring life into the world. And we, um, we need to take it with what it comes with. It naturally comes with some sacrifices and, and I wrote a piece for Verily after that, how having babies or um, my post having being postpartum after having a baby helped me to appreciate my body more. And so even if my weight wasn't my favorite, you know, feeling myself at that time, it wasn't all of me. I was much more than that. I was, mother, I was doing a lot of things and I was trying my best and I was being my newborn. And so I think we just need to see the whole person and that gives us. Uh, a sense of they're truly beautiful. And when it comes to fashion, there's always something for every woman. I think that what I really love is this philosophy. I recently, in the last year, interviewed a French designer, clothing designer of heroines. It's a store called Heroines in France, in Paris. And it's her name is Aurelie Cohen. And she has a remarkable philosophy. When I went in her shop, I looked at one of the pieces of clothing and I went to see the size and it had a little tag that said, you are so much more than a size. And I thought, what? Who's this lady? Who's behind this? This is an interesting thing to be confronted with. And then she said, oh, no, no. Yeah. The, the clerk said, we are um, we help you find the right thing for you and the clerks will help you. And you don't have to worry about your size because in France, apparently, and it's probably true here, too. There's a sense of, well, is this a size? I forget the number in France, but in the United States, is this a size four or two or zero? She says in France that some woman won't even buy the thing. They won't even try it on if it's not a certain size. And um, 
she's just trying to help women in all their sizes to feel in whatever stage of their life they're at to feel lovely and beautiful. And they really succeed. I mean, I, I wish we could have it over here in the U S hopefully one day they'll come over here. Um, but I shared it in the interview just to sort of get this idea across. And actually we then we had a little raffle and we're doing it again this year where anyone who subscribed to Verily before the end of the year is in a raffle for us to sh ship them over to France with their best friend or like a girlfriend and get a little shopping spree at Heroines. And so we're doing it again. But when we did it this past year, the ladies showed up. It was two sisters. It was so fun. And they showed up and one of them was pregnant. One of them was eight months pregnant. And um, and even though it's not a maternity store, Orly was there and she was she was able to find some lovely outfits that work that worked with Rebecca's shape at that time and also postpartum. And Rebecca was like moved to tears. She was so emotional. She was so thankful that there was a place that that could appreciate that. So and we did photograph it. It is in the um, the summer issue of Verily those photos and you can see that they're beautiful. So no matter what size a woman is, whatever stage of life she's in, we, we truly believe and we will show it. We'll show, um, we'll tell you, but we'll also show you that women are beautiful at all stages. That's very lovely of Verily Magazine because it, I, I, I'm raising daughters and I know that the, what they see reflected back at them from the culture is this, this idea that their self-worth or their worth in general is very tied to their appearance. And, and then the, the threshold that they have to cross, no, to be worthy at all is very, very high and also completely false and artificial. So mm -hmm. how fabulous that you're combating that and taking and, and making, making your mark and taking your space in a culture which has been hijacked entirely, right, by, by that other way of looking at, at, at women. But you also, in Verily, you also concentrate on relationships. And I think that's just as important for women's self-worth to, to really understand, as you say, that we are made for relationship and, and not, to, not to breathe in from the culture what uh, the culture is telling us, the, the general culture, which uh, is really telling us about toxic relationships and, and competitive relationships, but that there are relationships that are true to our, to our best selves, where we can be, mm -hmm. right? Like growing and ennobling in our relationships with people. How do you see, Verily, and, and the way that you reflect back to, to women, what relationships can be like? Yeah, a big part of that is that we aren't participating in the silly games, like manipulative relationship tricks or only male-pleasing stuff. You see it all over women's magazine cover lines. It's so sad. Um, you know, please your man this XYZ way, or, you know, I joke with ladies like we don't have the article that says how to get back your ex in like 10 days or blow his mind etc like things that are really unhelpful and unhealthy for real lasting relationships the kind of relationships that women survey saying they still want uh commitment and yet uh the magazines out there and outlets all over the web are not really giving the kind of advice that would help to foster healthy relationships so We've been blessed over the years with really great relationship editors and content, um, really great writers, you know, some Gottman certified therapists who contribute to our site, who have shared, you know, these healthy tips on relationships that has stunned us in our, our number of viewers. We have a half a million viewers monthly from search to our relationship articles. And it's basically because we are, we are answering some questions they're looking for answers to on a regular basis, but that other outlets aren't answering. So we're so happy we can be that light for them to new readers to reach our our pages and see a different an kind of answer that actually can fulfill them. But we are really hoping to grow as well because we can see their comments and we see comments on these articles 
that show that there's still a lot of questions. There's still a lot of confusion out there. You know, like some woman will say on a comment, you know, I'm I'm really interested in this guy. He says he's interested in me, but he's not yet divorced from his wife. And it's like, oh, lady, we need to. Yes, let me help you. Let me help build you up and help you to you know, see where you want to go here. And and they're really looking for answers. And so we want to just connect women. And so it's not just like relationships in terms of romance. We're also trying to connect women with each other because girlfriend relationships are really important to women's mental health. And I think a study showed one to two times a week is the ideal amount of times that you'll get together with another woman. And so, you know, just to, because sometimes that that's the kind of person who's going to understand what you're going through, but also you aren't only just one romantic relationship. You're not only defined by just your romantic status. So we just think that it's important to see the integration of our entire selves, you know, with our communities, with our family, friends, if we're called to, you know, a romantic relationship. And we try to cover all those bases in our relationship section at Barely. And also, it just reminded me, since you said TikTok earlier, there's a stupid, silly trend um, I've seen where of like flinching at your partner, like sort of like looking at them like you're going to go at them and like attack them and then see how they respond and record it. That's just to me, like, of course, at first, it's like really silly and can be humorous to see responses. People have like, what are you doing? Or like hitting them back or or just being surprised and shouting at them. But I think it's just a reflection of how we're just becoming more me-centered. Like, this is entertainment for others. This isn't about a mutual relationship between two people. And we need to just reorient ourselves back to seeing each other as people and not as just opportunities for attention to ourselves. And um, we've realized that instead of killing ourselves for ads, we need to just you know, keep pushing the, the good work out there to help women not compromise our values and to reach more women and girls who are looking for better content. And our, we, we have a lot of exciting goals this year, such as um, or in the coming year, to reach people in the places where women read women's magazines already. So like salons, nail salons, hair salons. So if people spend hours each, you know, each month um, where uh, thousands of women, you know, hundreds of thousands of women are sitting down and voluntarily picking up what's there, but there's not much great stuff there. And wherever we've been going, um, I've been going to some women's conferences across the country the past few months, and just like thousands of women, there were one in Philadelphia, one in Austin, Texas, and they come right up to our booth and they say, oh my gosh, no Photoshop of women, and they, they, they'll get emotional. And I started to pull some some people's words in, um, in a Google form because so many women came up and said, this would have changed my life if I had this earlier. And so we really do want, you know, for our daughters to provide something better. And we're even talking about creating a Verily teen uh, so that even younger women can, can, we could reach them sooner before a lot of this distortion of beauty and of self uh, gets worse. So, so we have some exciting plans ahead and we are, we are looking for support. And as a, we have just this year been, uh, approved by the IRS as a nonprofit 501c3. So we're just thrilled to be jumping in and, and working to change a culture. Well, thank you, Mary Rose. We are out of time, but um, for our listeners, Christmas is around the corner. Uh, what better gift for um, women in your life than a subscription to Verily? Thank you for joining us, Mary Rose, and we wish you the best. Thank you, Ashley and Gracie. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to join you again and ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the Gospel this Sunday. As we, with the Apostles Peter, James, and John, 
will behold Jesus transfigured among us. On the second Sunday of Lent, the church each year has us pray over the scene of the Lord's transfiguration. Part of the reason is to give us, like God gave the three chosen apostles, a brief taste of Jesus' glory so that we may be strengthened for the journey of Lent just like Jesus intended to fortify fortify these three friends before they would behold Jesus transfigured in blood on Mount Calvary. Knowing that one who carried the cross to Golgotha and the one who summons us in Lent to carry our cross is in fact God provides the greatest possible confidence that the way of the cross is in fact the divine way. And so it's meant to inspire us to live Lent with great courage, focus, and abandon. This year, as we continue to pray for all those in the Holy Land after the October 7th attacks by Hamas and the ongoing war in Gaza, the remembrance of how the Lord became dazzlingly white is a powerful reminder that bloodshed, hatred, and darkness do not have the last word, but that God himself entered not just the world, but the Holy Land to lead us all on an exodus ultimately from death to life. So we pray for that exodus for the people in the land he made holy. The scene of the Transfiguration has three concrete lessons that are meant to influence the way every Catholic lives Lent and life. First lesson concerns the exertion, the effort that a Holy Lent entails. Jesus led Peter, James, and John on what St. Mark calls a hike up a high mountain apart from themselves. Christian tradition normally associates the mountain where Jesus was transfigured as Mount Tabor, which towers over Galilee in the plains of Megiddo and takes over 10 minutes to climb and vans up narrow, zigzagging paths. It would take vigorous climbers at least a few hours to ascend on foot. But scripture scholars believe that the more likely place where the glorification happened was Mount Hermon, now in southern Syria and close to Caesarea Philippi, where the preceding scene in St. Matthew's Gospel took place. Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet tall, approximately five times the height of Mount Tabor, which is 886. That would have been a whole day's work to ascend. Jesus and the apostles would have needed to leave civilization behind, to leave their comfort zones behind, and to climb, sweating, probably gasping for air, in order to pray. The lesson for us this Lent is that the Lord is likewise asking of us to make an exertion. Lent is fundamentally dynamic. We're called to be on the move. Jesus never says to us, stay where you are, but always come and go and follow me. And the pilgrimage he seeks to have us make with him isn't in a comfy golf cart. It's not downhill. It's not even in a mountain climbing, zigzagging van. Jesus is asking us to climb, to sweat, to work, and to leave our comfort zones behind. Each of us needs to ask, therefore, what is the Lord asking me to leave behind in order to advance with him on the journey of faith this Lent? The second lesson is the help God gives us to make this exertion. In the Transfiguration, Saints Peter, James, and John saw something extraordinary at the end of their spiritual and physical climb. Jesus was transfigured. He and his clothes became radiant. He was speaking with Moses and Elijah, the greatest figures in Jewish history, the personifications of the Law and the Prophets, respectively. About the exodus, St. Luke says, he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Like Moses led the Israelites from slavery through water in the desert to the Promised Land, Jesus was going to lead us to liberation. Only this time, the slavery wasn't sin, but it was sin, but not, not Pharaoh. The water is baptismal, not the Red Sea. The desert is not in the Middle East, but in Lent. And the Promised Land is not flowing with milk and honey, but with the living water that wells up to eternal life. The experience of the various theophanies at the top of the mountain was so powerful that it left Peter, James, and John speechless. But they wanted to keep the experience going for as long as possible, with Peter offering to build three tents, one each for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Why did the scene of the Transfiguration happen? 
as I alluded to before. The reason was ultimately to strengthen the apostles to remain strong in faith, even when they would descend the Mount of Transfiguration to ascend Mount Calvary. When they would see Jesus transfigured in blood, they would be able to remember Jesus in glory. The church has us capture the reason for Jesus' transfiguration in the Eucharistic preface for this Mass, in which the priest prays, For after Jesus had told the disciples of his coming death, on the holy mountain he manifested to them his glory, to show even by the testimony of the law and the prophets that the passion leads to the glory of the resurrection. It was, in other words, to sustain their faith in trial, to sustain our faith. We know for them it didn't fully work. They fell asleep in the garden. They fled in Gethsemane. Only John was still present at the foot of the cross. But while for the most part it failed them, it's meant to sustain us. This vision of Jesus' glory is what has sustained the faith of the martyrs in making the sacrifice of themselves for God, because they knew that once they breathed their last, they would see Jesus transfigured. This vision of Jesus' glory and how he wants us to share in it is meant to give us the hope to persevere in faith no matter what trials come our way. It's also meant to help us live Lent boldly and make the sacrifices necessary to come into greater union with God. If anything's keeping us from the Lord, the vision of Jesus' glory will help us to excise those obstacles, or to use Jesus' biblical image, to cut off those hands or feet or pluck out those eyes. The sacrifice is worth it. Whatever we have to give up makes sense compared to the glory we await, the glory he wants to share with us. The final lesson is perhaps the most important. After all of the other aspects of Jesus' transfiguration, God the Father finally speaks. He speaks only three times in the entire New Testament. At Jesus' baptism, when he pronounces Jesus' beloved Son, in whom he's well pleased. At the Last Supper, when in response to Jesus' prayer to glorify his name, replies that he has glorified and will glorify it again and in the transfiguration. But what he says is really quite strange when you think about it. After pronouncing Jesus once more, his beloved Son, in answering the question Jesus had asked in the previous scene when he surveyed who people and who the apostles were saying him to be, God the Father thundered, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's a peculiar imperative from God the Father. After all, what had Peter, James, and John been doing for the previous two years but listening to Jesus? They listened to him call them from their boats to be fishers of men. They heard him say all his parables, like of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the sower of the seed, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and so many others. They listened to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and the great Eucharistic discourse in the Capernaum Synagogue. They listened to him teach them how to pray. They listened to him instruct them as they walked along the dusty streets of Palestine. They listened to him lambaste the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees and console widows, sinners, and so many others. They had spent the last two years constantly listening to Jesus. But God the Father noted something that they hadn't themselves grasped. They had been selectively listening to Jesus. And they had been particularly tone deaf to what Jesus had been saying about how he was going to be betrayed, suffer greatly in Jerusalem, be tortured, crucified, killed, and the third day be raised. They didn't want to hear it. Jesus ended up telling them that this would occur three separate times, but they didn't want to hear the message. And when Good Friday came, most of them were not within earshot to hear Jesus' seven last words. What they were even less willing to hear was what Jesus said after, namely, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To be Jesus' disciple, 
to be able to follow him. They needed to say no to their earthly ambitions and be crucified with him. God the Father, who could see their hearts, knew that they were ignoring what Jesus was saying about his transfiguration and suffering and their metamorphosis by the cross as well. So that's why he said, listen to him. God the Father gives us that same command. On Ash Wednesday, for example, Jesus said, repent and believe. Have we? He likewise called us to pray, fast, and give alms. Are we doing so? Are we excelling in the self-denial, the self-death, through the crosses God gives us, and in following Jesus and heeding all of his words? God the Father, who calls us to listen to his Son, will listen to our prayers to have the trusting, obedient ears needed. But we have to ask for it. And that's one of the most important parts of Lent. On Sunday, we will leave our homes to climb, not to the Mount of Transfiguration, but to the altar of God. It's there at Mass that Lent and everything else in our faith finds its source and summit. The Lord wants us to make the exertion to leave our comfort zones and come, even to come each day during Lent if we can. It's at Mass that we see transfigured not in glory, but in humility. We build not a tent for him, but a tabernacle and a church so that we can come into his presence and allow him to transfigure us. It's at Mass that we listen to his word, the words of eternal life, and seek to become living commentaries of it. Each time we go to Mass, God the Father gives us a reward for our exertions, gives us a foretaste of forever. He gives us what he holds dearest, but was willing to sacrifice for us and our salvation. As we behold that Lamb of God, his Son, who takes away the sins of the world, God the Father says to us, This is my beloved Son, do whatever he tells you. Take seriously his words throughout Lent, repent and believe, and follow him, accompany him on the pilgrimage on which he wants to lead you, up not Mount Tabor, not Mount Hermon, but the celestial Jerusalem, to my house, where I've built a place not only for him, for Moses and Elijah, but for you. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 